The reading is taken from Revelation chapter 3, starting at verse 14, and this can be found on page 1236 of your Bible. Revelation chapter 3, verse 14, to the church in Laodicea. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So, because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Those whom I love I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Pat, and good evening, everybody. This is the third opportunity look, to look at the uh, seven letters to the churches in this section of Revelation. This is the last one, and you'll see from the screen I've given it the title Wholehearted Commitment. It's part of our overall series uh, in the book of Revelation, and we're going to look at this uh, well-known letter to the church. Please do have the Bible open as we look at these verses together. Yesterday I received an email from a friend of ours who is very seriously ill with cancer. Um, he has endured a very demanding period of chemotherapy. Um, at the same time, unfortunately, he's caring for his elderly mother who's also suffering from the same condition. He has a young family and so he has to try to make sense of his circumstances and how a Christian understands such a moment to his young children. And yet, uh, when you receive his emails, they are extraordinarily positive and peaceful. Um, he's just received news of a fairly serious deterioration in his condition, and he may not have many weeks to live, but this is what he wrote in his email. You will know how to pray for us at this time, but please include prayer that we may live in a way that looks up to God rather than inwards to our own needs, so that our weeks may be lived for the glory of Christ and the furtherance of the gospel. Uh, Mother Teresa once said this, you will never know that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. 
And this, I think, is really the theme of this last of the seven letters. It introduces this basic issue that perhaps I could do so by asking one or two simple questions. If you were asked, what is Christianity, I wonder how you'd reply. And I think it might be best for us to say Christianity is Christ. If you were asked, what is a Christian? I suppose the simplest answer is a Christian is a person who is in union with Jesus Christ. Or if you're asked, what is a church? Perhaps the simplest answer is a church is a community at which Jesus Christ is at the center. The critical issue in the Christian life relates to our commitment to Jesus Christ, our dependence on Jesus Christ. And the tragedy in Laodicea was that this church was living as though Jesus didn't matter. The letter is introduced, in fact, with a description of Jesus in verse 14. I mentioned last week that nearly always the little introduction that's given about Jesus has something significant to say to the church and uh, the issues being addressed. Here, verse 14, if you look to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, these are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. So two things said about Jesus in that introduction. First of all, the Amen. Um, that's a word which simply means this is true, this is certain. It's often used in John's Gospel, do you remember, where Jesus says, Amen, Amen, truly, truly. And it's underlined there, the faithful and true witness. Jesus is saying, you can be absolutely certain about what I am saying. Not only that, Jesus is God's yes. He is God's amen. Everything which God has promised is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He is the rock-solid foundation for our lives and for our church. We are completely dependent on Jesus Christ, the amen, God's yes. The second thing in the introduction is this phrase, the ruler of God's creation. And again, it's quite simple. Jesus is saying that everything has been brought into being by Jesus. Every breath we take, every beat of our heart, every aspect of our life is because of Jesus, the ruler of God's creation. It's impossible to exist in God's universe without Jesus. He is our life. So that's the letterhead, if you like. That's the introduction. This letter comes from Jesus himself. It's, he is the source and the sustainer of our lives. We are completely dependent on him. So what does he have to say to this church in Laodicea? And I just selected three themes to focus on these verses. First of all, he describes what I've called a sickening condition. You'll see it there in verse 15. I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. It's um, metaphorical language, of course, but we all know what Jesus is getting at. And the Laodiceans would have understood what Jesus was saying as well. It probably referred to the hot springs, which were in uh, Hierapolis, and which traveled across the plateau towards Laodicea. And by the time they bubbled up in Laodicea, having traveled across that hot plateau, uh, they had lost their refreshment. They were lime-laden. They were really distasteful. And so anybody who was hoping for refreshment in coming to those springs would have discovered the revolting water. 
I heard on the radio the other day that Andrew Marr was uh, trying to break his coffee habit. He's drinking uh, 12 to 15 cups a day, which um, seems quite modest to me. But anyway, he, um, <laughs> he was trying to replace coffee, and so he decided to have hot water with lemon in it. And then on the radio he said he cut out the lemon because he thought it was rather too indulgent. And then he cut out the hot. It was just tepid water. I'm going to stay with coffee, personally. You know what tepid liquids are like. Most of them are distasteful. And Jesus' words are very deliberate. It's actually an expression of disgust. I am about to spit you out of my mouth. I'm nauseated by the way you are living, Jesus says. His verdict on them is that they are utterly useless. Unlike cold water, which can be very refreshing in that part of the world on a hot day, and unlike the hot springs, which would have healing properties, you are neither one nor the other. You're of no value at all. And Jesus doesn't want a church like this. I am sick when I think about it, Jesus is saying. So what had gone wrong? Why this response from the risen Jesus? I think we should say, in essence, it was because they were trying to live without him. And it is a fairly common condition. I hinted at it last week when we were thinking about reputation and reality. There are many people who name the name of Christ, and yet they really keep Jesus at a distance. People who like to be known as Christians, but keep one foot in this world. Such Christians are basically living two lives. They are really double-minded, or to put it in another way, which fits the title of what we're thinking about, they are half-hearted. Jesus Christ, the Amen, the ruler of creation, calls us to be totally dependent on him, to be totally committed to him. So why were they lukewarm? Well, that brings us to the second theme, and that is, I've summarized it under the heading, a selfish cause. This sickening condition had a selfish cause. And as you read the letter, you can identify three things which are characteristic of this selfish attitude. First of all, as you see on the screen, they were self-satisfied. Verse 17, you say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. Now, those who write books and commentaries on these letters often highlight three things about Laodicea, for which it was very well known in the first century. First of all, it was a banking center. It was uh, at a very significant point in the great trading routes of the day. So it was really a commercial or a financial center. It was a bit like Zurich in Switzerland or Hong Kong in Asia. It was a rich banking center. With that kind of wealth came a spirit of independence. Again, the records tell us that uh, when Laodicea was razed to the ground through an earthquake, which happened in AD 61, the local city council decided to rebuild the city with, uh, with a refusal of any external help. In fact, the Roman historian Tacitus wrote this, Laodicea arose from the ruins by the strength of her own resources and with no help from us, from the Romans. Not only was it a business center, it was a medical center. The city was well known for a very famous medical school and they produced an eye powder which was exported all around that part of the world. It, it was placed on the eye, uh, diluted and very good for weak eyes apparently. 
And thirdly, it was also a clothing centre because on the hills around Laodicea were sheep and a very distinctive breed of sheep which had soft black wool. And one of the reasons for the city's wealth and its effectiveness in trade and its prosperous uh, uh, economy were to do with that clothing industry. It had a very big export market. Apparently very nice uh, black woolen waistcoats were exported, Laodicean clothing. Well, these believers to whom Jesus is writing have come to faith in Jesus Christ. They, however, had realized that little by little, Jesus was not so central to their lives. Little by little, the influence of the city in which they lived had corroded their faith. They'd gone back to their old attitudes. They'd become comfortable, complacent, lukewarm. So you can understand why the Christians may have caught the spirit of that independent city. And so Jesus says, verse 17, you say, I am rich, I have need of nothing. They were self-satisfied. Then secondly, a second aspect of this selfish cause was self-centeredness. In Laodicea, something very serious had happened. Jesus himself was outside of the church. How do we know that? Well, it's obvious from verse 20. Jesus says, here I am, I am standing at the door and knocking. So this Laodicean Christian community were living in this self-contained, self-sufficient world. They were trying to live as though Jesus didn't matter. They kept him at arm's length. There was no wholehearted commitment to Jesus. They simply left him outside the door. Um, last year I remember seeing someone uh, here in Oxford wearing a t-shirt and it had the slogan today is all about me and that sums up so much of our culture it's a very boring way to live I think but that's the me attitude the me culture in fact a friend of mine said that he just read that uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken are introducing a new flavor and it's called I'm in charge that's the meal that you can order it sums up the kind of Laodicean conviction this influence on Christians, it can produce a self-centered, self-sufficient Christian community. We effectively say to Jesus, it's fine. We can manage things. Everything's okay. Self-satisfied, self-centered, and thirdly, even worse, self-deceived. You'll see what verse 17 says. You say, I am rich, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. So the risen Christ looks at this church, as we saw last week, and he sees what really is going on. He understands the reality. You don't realize, Jesus says. You think there's nothing wrong, but in reality, you are spiritually sick. And notice the way that Jesus exposes that in verse 17. You are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. And uh, they're well-chosen words, aren't they, given the status of that city in the first century, the kinds of things I've just mentioned. You may think you are part of a wealthy community. You have your trade and your finance and your banking. But in reality, you are poor. It's the opposite of what we saw when we looked at Smyrna just two Sunday evenings ago. Do you remember Jesus' words in chapter 2 and verse 9? He said to Smyrna, which really was a poor Christian community, 
I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. But to this community, with its medical, its clothing uh, industries, you are blind and naked. And that, of course, is the tragedy of spiritual sickness. We don't know it. We are self-deceived. Perhaps that's why in verse 20, the image is of Jesus who is standing there patiently knocking at the door. He is outside. We can't hear him. Self-satisfied, self-centered, self-deceived. That's a tragedy for any church and it's a tragedy for any Christian. The great thing, of course, is that like all of the seven letters, this message, this uncomfortable and penetrating message to the church isn't all there is. There is also a word of hope and of promise. It shows us not just this sickening condition and this selfish cause, but you'll notice the cure, the saving cure, the third thing. And I'd like to summarize this in terms of three things which Jesus can bring to us if anybody here senses some resonance with that church in Laodicea, some lukewarmness of heart and spirit. Three ways back, if you like. First of all, Christ's love. This is what Jesus says to the self-deceived. You'll see it on the screen, verse 19. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. You might be surprised at first when you read it that Jesus actually says this to the church. This is the church he cannot literally stomach. And he says, I discipline those whom I love. He loves us, and if we're in this state, he longs that we should change. And his love for us compels, that, compels him to discipline us in various ways. Maybe as he walks among the lampstands, as we saw in Revelation 1, maybe even as he walks amongst us in St. Andrews, maybe as he is standing next to us, some of us have grown lukewarm, and we need to hear what Jesus says. He says, be earnest and repent. In other words, there are times in our Christian lives when we need to recognize that although we may have received God's grace, we can cheapen God's grace by keeping Jesus at arm's length. We live as though this gospel doesn't really matter, as though our life doesn't depend on Jesus Christ, the ruler of God's creation. So Jesus says, you must respond with seriousness. Be earnest and repent. Interestingly, the two words are in two different, sense, uh, two different tenses. We must repent at once, and then we must continue to be fired up with zeal and commitment for Jesus Christ. Be earnest. Continually be zealous for Jesus Christ. Repent of a lukewarm attitude to him. So we need to turn away from the complacency of an easygoing Christianity and commit ourselves to live our lives fully for Jesus Christ. That pathway to wholehearted commitment begins by confronting this self-deception that the Laodiceans had and which sometimes we Christians have as well. A second answer is Christ's invitation. This is what he says to the self-satisfied. Look at what he says in verse 18. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes 
so you can see. The first thing about that verse is to notice where all of that comes from. Where do these resources, the spiritual resources that we need come from? He says, come by from me. They were saying, I am rich, I do not need a thing. But they needed to discover that their sufficiency is in Jesus Christ. Do you remember in Jesus' manifesto of the kingdom of God in Matthew 5, in the Beatitudes, Jesus explained that his value system was quite different from the value system of this world. In fact, he describes it in rather like stepping into the shop window of our world so that those things which are of great importance are now of little, of little importance. He swaps the price tags around. And those things which are of little importance are now of great importance. That's Jesus' kingdom, his kingdom values, swapping the price tags of our world. And his opening statement in that manifesto of the kingdom of God, do you remember? Blessed are those who know their need of God. Blessed are those who in their deepest evaluation of themselves know that they're spiritually bankrupt, know they have nowhere else to go except to Jesus. And I think that's what Jesus is implying here in Revelation 3. Those Christians might have imagined themselves to be rich, to be well-dressed, to have 20-20 vision. And yet in reality, Jesus says, you're poor and blind and naked. So verse 21, to the poor, Christ offers gold refined in the fire. They are naked, but Jesus offers them clothes to cover that shameful nakedness. They are blind, but Christ offers them eye salve to put on their eyes so that they can see. In other words, Jesus is saying, you don't need to trust on all of those things, the passing glories of this world, the banks, the clothing industry, the medical school. It's an image of saying you don't need to depend on all of those value systems of this world. You need to depend on me, the ruler of God's creation, the one who gives you life. They needed Jesus Christ alone. So the saving cure is first Christ's love that confronts our self-deception. Second, it's Christ's invitation to receive all that we need, confronting our self-satisfaction. And thirdly and finally, Christ's fellowship. This is what he says to the self-centered. It's the well-known verse, verse 20. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. It is, in fact, one of the most amazing verses in the whole New Testament. The person who responds to Jesus' voice, who opens the door to Jesus, that is, the person who turns away from this kind of self-centered, self-sufficient, self-satisfied living, will experience Jesus' fellowship, Jesus' friendship, his presence with them. But the picture in verse 20 is, is like an evening meal in a Mediterranean country. You know, in England, unfortunately, most of our meals these days are you know, like TV meals or fast food. And sometimes it's a great uh, pleasure to go to another part of the world where meals aren't just for eating. They're also for company, they're for friendship. And if you go to the Mediterranean, sometimes we have each other uh, for meals in our homes. It's a more leisurely time with good friends and good food. It's a time which is for fellowship. 
And Jesus is saying that. I long that you would open the door of your life so that I can eat with you, you can eat with me. This verse 20 is not in the first instance an evangelistic appeal where Jesus is saying, please open the door of your heart to me. These are believers, these are Christians who have effectively excluded Jesus from their lives. This Laodicean conviction that we don't need him. We've gradually nudged Jesus out. We've shifted him from center stage. We've replaced him with other things. So the invitation of verse 20, this call to welcome Jesus, is a call to welcome him into every part of our life. It's a call to wholehearted allegiance to Jesus Christ. And it's a very personal appeal, isn't it? You'll notice the language which is used. Although this is addressed to a church, to uh, Laodicea and to all churches, listen what the Spirit says to the churches, it's also very personal if anyone hears my voice. And the other thing to mention is that it's not just a reminder of our present fellowship with Jesus. It also anticipates the future, the heavenly banquet which Revelation talks about, the great party which ultimately will be had with all of God's people, with there, with Jesus himself. There's another aspect of this invitation in the future which is even more remarkable. We will not only share his fellowship, verse 21 adds one other thing, we will also share in his rule. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. It's uh, very well expressed and summarized, I think, in a phrase of John Stott's. If we let Jesus Christ enter the house of our heart, he will let us enter the house of his Father. And if we allow Jesus Christ to sit with us at our table, he will allow us to sit with him on his throne. And that's why these words from Jesus Christ, the risen Jesus, the Lord of creation, are so remarkable, spoken to us with all of our lukewarmness. And so I conclude, this is what Jesus has to say to us through this letter. He exposes a sickening condition that can easily influence the uh, comfortable Christians. He demonstrates it has this selfish cause which imagines that life can be lived without Jesus. And he presents this saving cure of his love his invitation, and his fellowship. It is, in essence, a call to wholehearted discipleship. It's a call to repent and to open the door. It's to receive all that we need from him, seeking first his kingdom, as he says in the Gospels. And that's the way back from this sickening condition. So I wonder if I could ask you as I finish whether you do hear Jesus knocking in that kind of way. Is there some area of your life or mine, some attitude, some ambition, some decision, some relationship? And we know that Jesus Christ really does need to come in and take charge of that. Is there some struggle or some sorrow with which we are living or maybe even some sense of isolation and we really need Jesus to come in and eat this meal with us to enjoy his friendship? If you hear him knocking, do not leave him outside. Let's welcome Jesus into every corner of our lives. And Jesus says, he who has an ear, let him hear.
what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray for a moment. I'd like to suggest just a moment of quiet. As we reflect on these very powerful words spoken by Jesus to us, to all of the churches, but especially to St. Andrew's now and to our own hearts, maybe um, there are a few people here who have actually never yet opened their life to Jesus Christ. Uh, maybe you have been here for several Sundays and yet not repented of sin and turned in faith to Jesus for forgiveness and new life. And perhaps Jesus is knocking on your door. Maybe urge you in the name of Christ to repent of sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ. And where we're spiritually lukewarm, Let's realize that it is because of Jesus' love for us, he's calling us to repent. Where we've kept him outside the door, maybe in a relationship or a decision or a plan or an attitude, maybe even an anxiety which we are carrying alone, let's welcome Jesus into our lives. Maybe we're carrying sorrows and struggles which no one else knows about. So let's bring Jesus into our lives and know his companionship as he longs to enjoy with us. And since this evening we are very thankful to have so many young people here. You have your life ahead of you with all of its opportunities and its challenges. And in the light of these verses in scripture... Why not resolve to be wholehearted in your commitment to Jesus Christ? Not half-hearted, double-minded, but completely committed to serve Jesus Christ wherever he takes you and whatever he calls you to do. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Amen. <laughs>